we return now to those scattered believers. Remember where we started, Acts 8.4? Those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And now 11.18, Luke returns to zero in on some of them. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travel as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Here we have a portrait of a church, a church outside Jerusalem, a church founded by anonymous evangelists. We don't know their names, just some men from Cyprus and Cyrene, Greek speakers, now speak to Greeks. And this is no small move. Antioch is a key city. It's the capital of the province of Syria. It's the third or fourth largest in the empire. It's a crossroad with routes coming from the west and the east, the north and the south. Ethnically, it's a mixed city, Greeks, Syrians, and a sizable Jewish population. And the church in Antioch is significant. It's the first place where Jews are not a majority where Greeks in large number become Christians. And of course, it's the city uh, from which, and the church from which, uh, Barnabas and Saul are sent out to their mission from Asia and Europe. So this is an important city, a significant congregation, and a momentous change. But it happened with no-name evangelists. I mean, God had some pretty high-profile preachers around, the Billy Grahams of the day, the Peter and the Philip, but it wasn't them. It was just these men and women from Cyprus and Cyrene, just some of them, displaced people, finding a home, making a living. But they're groundbreakers. They begin to speak to the Greeks. No one else had taken the step of speaking to the local non-Jewish population, as far as we know, in their movement. And it's just some time. It happens next to, in the account, it happens following Peter's visit to Cornelius, but it's actually not dependent on that visit. These people don't wait for permission from some central authority to speak. They're not carrying out some prearranged human plan. They just did it. They spoke from the abundance of their heart. What message did they bring? Well, we only have a summary. They were speaking the word. They were telling the good news about the Lord Jesus, verse 20. They brought to these Greeks the royal and joyful news that God had made the crucified Jesus Lord. And speaking in terms of Lord meant that they were speaking a message 
that they could understand and involved them because he was everybody's Lord who died everybody's death and was risen to give life to all. What motivated these unknown believers? Why did they think it appropriate to take this step? Now, we're not told. In a sense, we don't need to be told, especially if we've been reading the Gospel, because there is actually sufficient motivation to speak to all in the Gospel of Jesus itself. Luke's Gospel ends with these words. He opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus commanded that the message be preached to all nations, a command that he repeated to the apostles, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So they were conscious, knowing the gospel of Jesus' instruction, and yes, they were conscious of the needs of their neighbours, the needs Jesus' death addresses. Forgiveness, alienation from God, fear of death. They're not just the needs of any particular part of society, not just the need of the Jews then, not just the need now of people who are blessed to grow up in Christian homes and communities. They're everyone's needs. And the death Jesus died was not just a Jewish death. It's actually human death, the death everyone must face. And the life Jesus has is the life of the new age. It's a life for all. And Jesus is the one to whom every knee will bow. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the one the apostles said, the only one in whose name salvation must be found. No other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. So it was actually just being Jesus' people that moved them to speak. Jesus' people who obey Jesus' word. Jesus' people who are moved to love. Knowing love, they embrace the command to love their neighbours. They embrace the command to love even their enemies. Of course, they weren't thinking of imposing their faith or their worldview. No, they were sharing a treasure. And that's what we're doing when we speak the gospel, isn't it? It's not an imposition. It's an invitation to be enriched. Knowing the gospel and experiencing God's love for us in the gospel should move us to speak. Oh, there's a cost for them, I'm sure, in speaking. We saw how hard it was for Peter to overcome his prejudices a cost to them in denying their own preconceptions. But they spoke, and verse 21, the Lord blessed their work. The Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned 
to the Lord. He was active in it. What we see in these first few verses is anonymous heroes of the faith who have gospel resilience. Dislocated from their homes and their communities, having experienced fear and grief, living an unsettled life, they just got on with bringing life to others because they spoke of Jesus, knowing Jesus. The work started well and news of it reached Jerusalem and to help consolidate the work of the Jerusalem, uh, to help consolidate that work, the Jerusalem church, who were naturally interested, sent to their assistance an extraordinary Christian leader. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. Uh, that Barnabas uh, is extraordinary. The right man in the right place at the right time can be seen from what's revealed of his attitude, his activity and his character in this place. When he arrived and saw the grace of, uh, the grace, what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Think of Barnabas's attitude. When Barnabas came down, what did he see and how did he respond? Others might have seen problems at Antioch, mightn't they? They've let all those Gentiles in. They're bringing down the tone of the church. They don't know how to behave. They've got no background in godly behaviour. There will be issues. They don't even know how to wash their hands properly before meals. And let me say, that is exactly what the Jews thought, right? And, you know, what will the rest of the Jews think? Well, we're going to create obstacles for the gospel coming to our own people if we let this influx of Greeks come in. And, and other Jewish Christians will think we're compromising. There'll be trouble. Others might have seen problems. And we know Acts 15, others did see problems. But Barnabas saw a work of God. He saw an expression of God's grace, of God's kindness to the undeserving. He was glad. People were being saved. People who were facing God's judgment were finding forgiveness. Lives were being changed. He was glad. Better, he rejoiced. Just as there is joy in heaven. Remember that's what Jesus says. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 people who don't need to repent. So there was joy in Barnabas' heart. Barnabas could be useful in this work of God because he had lined his heart up with God's. He'd lined his heart up with his saviours. What mattered to God, what caused joy to God was what mattered to Barnabas. Isn't that a good heart to have? That was Barnabas' attitude and what was his activity? Well, he throws himself into supporting this work of God. Uh, two aspects of his activity. He encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Oh, and yes, then verse 25, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. So he encouraged them and then he went to get help to sustain the work. 
Now think about this. Barnabas was the boy from head office. He could have thrown his weight around. I know the apostles. Yeah, I'm the man. He could have insisted that they were going to do things his way now. But he didn't come to control. He knows that. He came to help. He didn't want to do everything himself. He wanted to keep them going in the way they had started. He encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He told them to keep it up, to persevere. We're told, you know, we've got a summary of the content. Remain true to the Lord Jesus. He's actually saying to them, the choice you've made for Jesus is right. The ridicule you suffer for Jesus, the social and economic cost of following Jesus is all worth it, he's saying. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus is true. He did die for our sins and rise again. He'll return. He'll bring his people into the new heaven and the new earth. And Barnabas was well placed to remind these new believers of that. He could bring the eyewitness reports of the apostles. He could say to these new believers, I've shaken Peter's hand. The same hand, he tells me, touched Jesus' living body after the resurrection. Wouldn't that be something? The same hand that made sure Jesus was not a ghost that shared food with him. Oh, he could say, I've listened to John as he told me about the raising of Jairus' daughter. I've had tea with Mary and Martha. You know, Boy, do they have a story to tell. Uh, but it was hard to get Martha to sit down to tell it. But, <laughs> but Mary was much easier, right? But, uh, you know, wouldn't it be great to have someone who knew the people who had known Jesus? I mean, that would be wonderful. And we know, actually, first century believers, always, and into the early second century, that's what they preferred. I mean, thankfully, we've got the Bible, but they preferred the living witnesses. And they took the Gospels as a kind of consolation prize. But wouldn't it be marvellous? Well, the Antioch believers did because they had Barnabas. And he encouraged them to stay true to stay faithful to Jesus, to keep on as they've started. But Barnabas was also wise enough to know that there was more work in this growing church than he could handle. And that perhaps there were questions and issues that other people were better equipped to handle. So he went and got help. You remember that fellow that he and he alone had befriended all those years ago, in whom he saw the work of God. You know, when everybody else was suspicious of him, Barnabas was the man who invited this man with a violent past into the company of the apostles. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and talked great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Barnabas had seen great potential in Saul then and that had subsequently been proven in Paul's years of ministry in his hometown in Tarsus in Cilicia. And so Saul of Tarsus was just the man 
Barnabas wanted. A highly trained Old Testament scholar, fluent in Greek and well acquainted with their culture so he could live in both worlds in Antioch. A seasoned gospel campaigner now with a tested life called of God to work amongst the Gentiles. Barnabas wasn't afraid of Paul's brilliance. <laughs> and you think you'd have to have a fairly robust sense of your own ability to want to work with Paul. Uh, and he didn't fear his influence being eroded. And he wasn't jealous for his status. He knew what would benefit this congregation. And so he sought Saul out personally. He didn't want the message misunderstood. He wanted to press the urgency and the importance of the work. And together they give themselves to the regular teaching of the word and God blesses their labours. Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. For a whole year they work together. Here's the key appointment. And Barnabas has the wisdom to go and get him. Barnabas's attitude, his, his action and his character. What kind of person can demonstrate the kind of attitude and activity we've seen in Barnabas? Well, one with the same character. That's revealed in verse 24. It says, He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. A good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. When you looked at Barnabas, you saw a life empowered and dominated by the Spirit of Jesus. One lived every day in conscious trust of the Lord Jesus. And one in whom, through the Spirit, the character of Jesus was replicated. When you're full of the Spirit, there's not room for anything else. There wasn't room for anything else in Barnabas's life. He gave himself to obedience, to conforming all his thought and action to the truth of Jesus' teaching because he knew its truth. And he experienced the gift of the Holy Spirit which the Lord Jesus gives to all who trust him. He lived conscious of the Spirit. He was a good man, a sound man. There was nothing pretend about him no ulterior motives, no hidden self-interest. There was only room in his heart for living to please Jesus, like Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. That's how Stephen was described. Barnabas, an extraordinary Christian leader. And now we get a little glimpse of the community that's developing through the work of these no-name evangelists and through the work of Barnabas and Saul. A community which is growing as more and more turn to the Lord. Now it is a mixed community, Jew and Greek, and it's plainly keen to learn. They've got Barnabas and Saul and they meet together with them over a year and they learn. And in their community, they are characterised by their commitment to Jesus. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Those who were loyal to Herod were called Herodians. 
There was a group called Augustinians who were known for their commitment to the empire. But what distinguished these believers in the eyes of their counterparts because they're called Christians by others. It's not the name they choose for themselves. They often describe themselves as followers of the way. But it's their community that calls them Christians. What distinguished them in the eyes of their community was commitment to Jesus Christ. They were recognised as his partisans. It's Jesus they talked about. Jesus' interests they promoted. Jesus' instructions they followed. And Jesus was their hope. That's what distinguished them in the eyes of their community. So much so that they're called Christians. Being committed to Jesus and being concerned for other followers of Jesus is what characterised this Christian community. And it's in that light that we read the Agabus incident. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Agabus. One of them, uh, to Antioch, one, one of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Uh, Agabus, uh, like a, a number of other uh, people in the New Testament, like the daughters of Philip, is described as a prophet. And he comes down with this prophecy that there will be a severe famine that would spread over the entire Roman world. Now notice that he didn't tell them what to do. He just told them what was about to happen. And Luke notes that that actually did happen. In fact, Claudius's reign, and it's, uh, this is about uh, the time, the 40s, Claudius's reign, uh, of whom you may have heard, was actually marked by poor crops in different parts of the empire. Uh, the empire was particularly dependent uh, for grain on Egypt. And in Claudius's reign, <laughs> this is the most important, uh, they had really bad floods. You know, we think of the Nile flooding as you know, something that makes it fertile. But when it's too bad, it actually just wipes everything out. Uh, and they had bad floods in 45 AD. And, um, and what happens then was you get a relative lack of grain which drives up the price of grain throughout the empire. So the rain might have still been falling in Antioch. No drought there. But the price of grain throughout the empire went up and famines were experienced differently depending on your wealth. The people who experienced the famine were actually the poor because they just could not buy grain at that price. And as we know, and this, there were lots of poor, we saw that in Acts 6, all the widows in Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem was a bit of a magnet for that because Jews from around the empire would actually come there in their last days if they could, and widows would too, to be close uh, to the temple. So anyhow, he predicts that there's going to be uh, this uh, famine. But how did they know what to do? 
But before we look at that, uh, because that's actually the key point of this passage, the key point of the passage is what they do uh, with this information. But there is prophecy in the New Testament. Agabus appears again in Acts uh, chapter 21. Uh, these prophecies are quite discreet. Uh, they actually don't give guidance. They just say what's going to happen. People have to determine independently from their knowledge of God's will uh, what they would uh, do. It's just a, a feature of New Testament life. Um, you know, we know that prophecy is uh, one of the gifts and one of those things that happen when the Spirit is poured out. Uh, but prophecy does not have uh, the prominence in the book of Acts that some people say prophecy should have today. You're perhaps aware that there are some people who say that unless you or your congregation is getting prophetic words, you're living a deficient Christian life. Have you heard that? Am I just making that up? Well, you haven't heard that. That's good. I'm glad you're associating with the right people. That's good. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, but let me say there are people out like that. They're, they're like that. Uh, but when you actually look at the book of Acts and the spirit is poured out, Acts 2, and says your young men will dream dreams, you know, and you do it, and they'll prophesy. What is the prominent and dominant expression, verbal expression, of the spirit of prophecy in the book of Acts? Prominent and dominant verbal expression of the Spirit in the book of Acts. Yes. <laughs> Hang on, I've got, I've got a... What's that? Oh, he's here at last. Is that right? Is that him? At the back. You deserve that, Andrew. Uh, I think that was you, wasn't it? Or am I, am I falsely accusing someone? I can't tell. Around the back. Right, but it's the gospel. And you actually need to be really clear on that. And we have the gospel. That is the prominent and dominant expression of the spirit. Anyhow, if you're interested in prophecy, you can talk to me about it afterwards. The, the best guidance is in 1 Thessalonians 5. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophesying. Test all things. Hold fast to what's good. Abstain from every form of evil. And staying focused on where you should be focused, which is the gospel. Anyhow, that was kind of an aside. The question is, how did they know what to do? So here's, he comes down, there's going to be a famine. What are they meant to do with that piece of information? Well, they didn't wait for a prophetic word, for they had their master's word. By this will all people know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And they acted in love. Each one, as he was able, decided to provide help. Notice that there's no compulsory levy. You know, the elders didn't get together and say, you know, there's a famine, so we want, you know, each, everyone, we're, going to, we're going to send the envelopes around, everybody's good. No, it was each one as they were able. They gave freely as the Lord blessed them, taking into account their own needs, just like the collection uh, that Paul later took up in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. They gave freely because the Lord had told them they had to love their brothers and sisters. And so they acted in love. They paid a price 
for Christians they had never seen. Many of them Christians from a background completely different from theirs, Jewish believers. And they needed it uh, to be entrusted to faithful people who are already known in Jerusalem and so they actually sent their best with this gift. Barnabas and Saul. They gave freely for believers they didn't know and they sent their best to serve them. They were guided by what marked them out as Jesus' people. There is an extraordinary generosity in the believers in Antioch. Well, coming to the end of this section of Acts, there's great encouragement here, isn't it? Great encouragement to be followers of Jesus. We should be anonymous evangelists. We should be like these believers who are scattered, shouldn't we? We have to remember that the problems the gospel addresses are everyone's problems. Everyone needs peace with God. Everyone needs hope in the face of death. Everyone actually needs to come into a community that's characterised by love and truth. There is no group free of those needs in our community, whether they're our confident and, let me say, often self-righteous atheist friends, whether they're our Muslim friends, whether they're our employers or employees, our fellow students or our academics, whether they're our contented neighbour. They all will die and after death face judgement. Be anonymous evangelists because you know the good of the gospel, you know Jesus' will that the gospel goes to all. Don't keep it to yourself. Why would you keep such a great treasure to yourself? Pay the cost of speaking and don't wait to be organised into it. Notice that nobody organised these people. They just got on. You don't need a central plan to talk to your neighbour. You may need courage and prayerfulness, but a plan's not going to give you that. Be anonymous evangelists. And where you can, be like Barnabas. Be anonymous encouragers. Everyone needs encouragement to remain true to the Lord. Because every believer will face trials and tests. Everyone. And at different times the needs will be greater. Everyone experiences the frustration of not living the godly life they want to live. Everyone experiences tests and trials, whether it's of singleness or difficulty in their marriage, whether it's longing for children or whether it's difficult children, whether it's sickness or whether it's problems of everybody is tested. Everyone needs encouragement. And notice, even the able need encouragement. One of the great features of Barnabas was he was not afraid to encourage Saul and to bring him to a work in which he could flourish. We are told to encourage each other to be true to the Lord with all their hearts, not 
to be half-hearted in the faith. You know, the scripture tells us that we ought to be encouraging. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Or Hebrews 3 See to it, my brothers and sisters, that none of you has a simple and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. It is such a grief to me that over the years I've seen people who think that they can be kind of just carried along in their Christian life, just be passive in their Christian life. Attend church or maybe not attend church depending on something, whether something's on. Be in a growth group and not in... Oh, it just depends if how I feel. We need encouragement and we need to encourage. We've got to be like Barnabas with good hearts that want people to remain true to the Lord and will expend ourselves to actually bring that about. Be encouragers because the gospel is true, it's good and it gives hope and we need to persevere to come to the fulfilment of that hope. This is a wonderful church. From this church the gospel is launched into Europe. Be anonymous evangelists like them. Be encouragers like Barnabas. And let's share Antioch's distinguishing features. If you didn't label yourself as a Christian, would your neighbour label you a Christian? And that's what happened in Antioch. By their conversation, their action, their interests, their hopes, it was plain to everybody that they were committed to Jesus. They were loyal to Jesus. They lived for him, trusting him. If you didn't label yourself, would your neighbour label you? We so often want to avoid labels. This is one we should long to be applied to us. Because there's nothing better than being a Christian. I hope you realise that. Nothing better. Jesus will raise you from the dead. He'll wipe every tear from your eye. What could be better? Make you whole. Let's be known for our loyalty to Jesus and let's be known for our genuine love. A generous love. That's what marked out this congregation. They heard of a need, a need amongst people they had never met. And people, in a sense, who would never be able to reward them except by their thanks and prayers. And they gave as they were able. Yeah, love is shown in the way you use the things God gives you. It's actually shown in the way you use money. We have to remember this, don't we? I mean, we have many calls. We're a busy congregation, lots of, to keep us, ourselves preoccupied with. And we have many calls on our funds. And I'm, <laughs> Session's just making moves to make even more calls on your funds. Uh, but the distinguishing feature of Antioch is that their activity 
and their giving just did not end in themselves in supporting their own programs and their own initiatives. They gave to people outside themselves who were in need. Now, no matter how busy we get and no matter how much the need within, we actually have to trust God enough to actually keep on being generous to those outside because whatever our needs, their needs are greater. That's true for so many places and so many Christian communities around the world, isn't it? They didn't see it as an imposition. They saw it, they gave freely. That's not an imposition or a tax. They saw it as an opportunity to show that they were Jesus' one people, Jew and Gentile, the one people of God because they had the one gospel, the one saviour, the one spirit. Isn't that what the world needs to see? The Christian faith actually unites people from so many different backgrounds and cultures in love because we have the one loving saviour. Gospel resilience. You see it in the pages of Acts. Let's make sure we are resilient gospelers too. Because we know the gospel, we know its blessings. We know it is God's program. He's going to give his church all we need to keep that gospel going forward. God wants to save people from every kind of background. He's opened the door, he's made that plain and then he's entrusted the gospel to ordinary believers. And as they get on, God blessed their work, provided all they needed in leadership and moved them to be known and recognised by their loyalty to their Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for these ordinary believers whose names we don't know, who scattered abroad kept on speaking of Jesus and convicted by your spirit spoke of him to all even those who were of a different culture and language group to theirs. We thank you for them. And Father, we thank you for raising up people like Barnabas and Saul to meet the needs of your people. And we do pray uh, that we would also have a heart like Barnabas's, good, that rejoices in your work, that doesn't need to control, but just encourages. Help us to be like Barnabas, just as we're like those believers who speak the gospel in all circumstances. And we pray in your mercy that your spirit would so work in our hearts that our neighbours would recognise us as 
people who are loyal to Jesus, who are so loyal that we can be characterised as his devoted followers, Christians. And we pray that as his followers, we would excel in love, in love for Jesus' people and in love for all. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.